Hello and welcome to Wanderlust, a podcast about travel. I am your host, Lauren. In each episode, we'll meet a traveler, learn more about them, and something they're passionate about. I hope you enjoy this journey with me. This episode has a bit more background noise than usual. I removed as much as I was able, but it's still fairly noticeable. Please bear with it, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Jim Coffin has been traveling since his 30s. He's been to 92 countries and has no plan to stop. He has a PhD in anthropology and taught as a professor of anthropology at Ball State University. Then he became their director of international programs for 17 years until he retired in 2012. Please welcome Jim. Thank you for having me. What was the first country you traveled to? The first country I traveled to was Canada when I was 30 years old and went to the professional meetings of the American Anthropological Association as a grad student to give a paper. Do they change the country where that conference is every year? Yeah, it's usually in the United States, a city in the United States. But in 72, it was in Toronto. And then a couple of years later, it was in Mexico City. And I went there to give a paper, too, at the Museum of Anthropology. What's your favorite part of travel? Oh, my favorite parts of travel is interaction with locals. I think that's the anthropologist in me, to get to know the locals, get to know the issues they're concerned with, this kind of thing. That's what I like the most. What has been your favorite adventure so far? My favorite adventure happened in Morocco when we were in the desert. To give you a little backdrop on that, we landed in Tangier on a ferry from Spain and got a rent-a-car. And we, as my family, my wife and three daughters, and we went from Tangier to Fez to Marrakesh. We went over the Atlas Mountains, which are the highest mountains in North Africa, 13,000 feet. And then on the downside of those mountains is the Sahara Desert. So we went through all kinds of geological zones, geographical zones, linguistic zones, cultural zones, and it was quite the adventure. I remember having a flat tire in the Sahara Desert. Now, at that time, which would have been 1989, when we had two of our kids at that time, our car broke down. And at that time, Morocco was in a border skirmish with Algeria. And we were about 12 miles from the border, and along comes an army truck. And I thought, uh-oh, you know, if it's the Moroccans, we're okay, but if it's the Algerians, we may have a hostage situation going on. And as they got closer to us within earshot, they understood our American English. And one of the men said, America, I love America. Kentucky Fried Chicken. He had been assigned military service in the United States. We supported Morocco, and he had been here And he kept saying Kentucky Fried Chicken. Anyway, four men lifted the front of our car, took the tire off and changed the tire. And he gave me instructions on where I can get a new tire the next day in a nearby village. So that doesn't get any better than that, I don't think, on adventure. How has travel changed since you started? It's gotten a little more 
difficult, uh, I guess, from a bureaucratic standpoint. You know, lines are longer. Sometimes it's harder to get a visa. Uh, visas in some countries are nearly prohibitive. I mean, if you want to go to Brazil, you pay a little over $300 per person. Do you think it's gotten easier to get around? We went to Africa last winter. We visited seven countries. We did a clockwise tour of the continent, starting in Egypt and ending in Morocco. London was our starting point and our ending point. And when we got there, we learned that if you went to to use the subway system, uh, all you have to do is use your credit card now to slap the uh, button on the turnstiles and you get right through and it's charged to your uh, credit card. That's really a lot easier than it used to be. Where do you want to go back to? Oh my gosh, there's so many. I'd like to go back to Madagascar one more time because my wife and I are avid snorkelers too. We always like to do that uh, wherever we go. And uh, off the north coast of Madagascar is probably the world's most pristine reef system still left. And that's because I think not that many people go to Madagascar and snorkel. It's an amazing reef system. Uh, It's like going into a flower garden. The fauna of the reef system is just amazing. Seahorses are floating in the water, octopuses all around, squids. It was just an amazing time we had there. What is anthropology? Well, the broadest definition is the study of man, the comparative study of man. Broken down into four subfields, uh, sociocultural anthropology, that's the subfield I represent. Anthropological linguistics is the second one. Archaeology is the third, and biological anthropology is the fourth one. If you knew them all, you would be a true Renaissance man. But in fact, we do have to link these together in our research. So for instance, I'll just give you an example of that. When we talk about the migrations of uh, native peoples into North America, uh, we can use biological evidence for that, analyzing uh, skeletal material and genetic material, DNA material. So that would be the bio part. We can analyze linguistic data. We know that, for instance, uh, the Navajo speak a language that uh, really started in the steppes of Russia, and it was brought over. It's called the Athapaskan language. And um, there's a Navajo version of Athapaskan. There's an Apache. uh, And then your artifacts. We can trace artifacts. For instance, uh, the Pueblo tribes, we know various ceramic motifs occurred in different families. They were hand-me-down motifs. And we can tell the migration through that. So, you know, that would be archaeology. And then, of course, your sociocultural habits uh, and customs. Uh, we can trace various customs that way. So uh, we can link all four subfields into one general research study if we have to. And by sociocultural anthropology, we can break that down. Social anthropology is the structures that we create to channel appropriate behaviors and expected behaviors of one another. Cultural anthropology deals more with the psyche. It deals with philosophy, value systems, emotions, explanations for reality. 
you know. So it's more of a thought process. And we believe in what we call consensual validation, where a group of people validate each other's theories on reality, explanations, descriptions, definitions, effective behaviors. They validate each other. They reach a consensus. And when that consensus is reached, culture is formed. So this this is what we're talking about. And then we develop roles and statuses from that, and we structure our society to channel those thoughts and those behaviors. So that's what we're talking about when we talk about anthropology. What did you do as the director of international programs? Well, as director, I oversaw what I would call the import-export trade of students. The export part of the trade was to develop study abroad programs to send Ball State students abroad. And the import part of my job was to bring in international students. Our office was divided into services for the international students to make them feel at home here, admissions, which dealt with the uh, legalities of getting their proper documents here, recruitment of uh, international students was part of our work, this kind of thing. And then going abroad, we developed and encouraged our own professors to come up with their own study abroad programs. These usually lasted for five weeks. Sometimes they would be at winter break time or in the summertime. The university itself had semester-long programs, the London Center, the Australia Center, Costa Rica. We had a semester abroad for business students in Prague. So we had to develop those. And we also dealt with bilateral programs with other universities abroad. We would exchange students. And then the fourth kind would we simply plugged into, I guess you might say, commercial outlets like ICEP, International Student Exchange Program, where they handled all the logistics, but we sent some students within those kinds of programs. I myself was personally involved, even before I became international director, in developing the three to five week program. And I also, along with my wife, Maggie, developed a semester program in Jamaica where we did train anthropologists. And we went every other spring semester from 1983 to 1999, where we trained students really from all over the United States because they would enroll as a Ball State student when they went on our program. And we usually took 10 students and they concentrated and did their own research, which we had already looked at when we were prompting them on the research part. And then I developed many, many short-term programs all over the world. And a lot of students went with me. I used to be called the Pied Piper of Ball State. (laughs) I would take people willingly out of their comfort zones. It was a little different than the original old uh, German tale of the Pied Piper of Hamlin, but this was for positive (laughs) reasons. But because I encourage people, entice people to go with me, get out of their comfort zones. That's what they they called me, the Pied Piper. I developed programs in Southeast Asia, in the Far East, in Costa Rica, the American Southwest, British Columbia, Western Europe, Mexico. (laughs) 
Jamaica, you name it. I pretty much took students there. I did this for 37 years at Ball State. The last 17 years was as director, and the first 20 was as a professor. And right off the bat, I started at Ball State in 75, and my first study abroad program was in 77 to the American Southwest. My motivations behind leading these trips, well, number one, professionally, I wanted my students to practice anthropology, get out of the textbook, get out of the abstract methodology and the abstract theory, and actually practice it. Let them get an appreciation of the personal, the analytical, the research uh, aspects of our field. I also wanted them to sensitize themselves to local issues and local problems that the people faced uh, to make uh, our students world citizens, give them a, a global perspective. What would you do on the study abroad programs? Let's go with the three-month Jamaica trip. Okay. We would select 10 applicants a year before that. And I'm talking about we being Maggie and I, who has a master's of art and also an MLA degree, master's of landscaping degree, both based on Jamaican research. Her MA in anthropology was a life history. Her MLA, master of landscape architecture, dealt with the planning of a reef protection park off the west coast of Negril, which she accomplished. In the preface, the government papers of Jamaica, they give a nod to Maggie for developing that reef protection park. Uh, getting back to that, Maggie and I would, with students, develop a research project that each student was interested in. So even before they went, we knew what they were going to research. Now, Another job of Maggie and I was to go down to Jamaica and make sure that there would be a site location for that student's research and to get the okay of the community and uh, any potential informants for that study. Now, once they got there, the informant network snowballed for them. So that was our main job in the preparation stage. Now, in the field, there were 10 students. They were scattered throughout that island, which is 180 miles long and about 40 miles wide, but they were scattered all over the place. And every week, the students would meet at the location of the 10th student. All the students and Maggie and I would travel, and we would have seminars, and uh, the students would update their particular research, the host student, and we would discuss again the research problems, the personal problems, the analytical problems, and so on of anthropological research. And then all 10 students would kind of exchange viewpoints on things. So we got an appreciation of what the host student was doing research on, and then they would meet as a group. Now, then the third uh, thing that we did, we exacted reports out of them, and we collected them like every two weeks. And then at the end of the semester, we gave them a year to get in their final papers. When it came to the short-term ones, 
we watched their interaction, their comportment behavior. We watched how they interacted with the people who we would travel to and grade them on the behavioral aspects of their comportment. And they would also then give us a term paper based on a, a piece of research that they committed to before going. And those students were selected also. And sometimes we would take up to 15 students on those. We did that for the Southwest trip 37 successive years. I want to explain that one of the tribal groups that we went to were the Havasupai, which entailed hiking in to the Grand Canyon. And as I grew older, we hiked less of the 11 miles in, and we began to take horses in. <laughs> but I have... We could say climbed and gone out of that Grand Canyon 37 straight years. And my last time I was down there, I went with my daughter and my son-in-law, and that was in 2015. But that's also given me 37-year perspective on Native American issues. I've watched those tribes change. I've seen them modernize. The first time I went to the American Southwest was in 1970 as a graduate student. That program actually was my model for my Jamaican program. I have to give a nod to uh, IU for giving me that model. You usually worked with a host or person already at the location for your programs. How do you set that up and how did you meet them? We met them in the course of our Travels. Maggie and I first went to Jamaica in 1978. We went there for a couple of weeks and realized already the potential that would be. We, even within two weeks, got to know a few people on the Grills West End. We went back in 79, we went back in 80 as tourists, but each time we went back to the core informant, or maybe better yet, host subjects. <laughs> we had a little core started in Naperville, and then that core had its own networks of people, maybe relatives, maybe friends. And those networks, I mean, those had tentacles all over Jamaica. And before long, you know, oh, you should visit so-and-so in, in this parish, and for instance, the very first guy that we ever met in Jamaica was a fella named Calvin Lawrence. The bus took us from the airport to Nicarill, and we were walking, you know, slushing along uh, with our luggage. And uh, this fella came up, and he told us uh, where this place was that we wanted to go. So we knew where we wanted to stay. Calvin took us there. Well, Calvin became one of our core host subjects. And his sisters lived elsewhere. His mother lived elsewhere. And we got to become part of his network. Well, you multiply that 10 times year after year, and you're going to get a, a large group of people that, first of all, were introduced to us, and we were introduced to them by people they trusted, their own relatives or their own friends. So that, that all led to a very congenial network for us. 
part of uh, the thing about Maggie and I is, uh, you know, we're kind of bold. I'll tell you a Jamaica story. Then I want to tell you a, a story about networking uh, in, on the Northwest Coast. The man on the dollar bill of Jamaica is Alexander Bustamante. He's known as the George Washington of Jamaica. One of the first rebels against British colonialism, uh, joined the unions and uh, labor rights and so on, became a leader. As England tired of supporting its empire, you know, year after year after year, they finally gave Jamaica self-governance. And he was put in charge in the self-government program. But when Jamaica became an independent country in uh 1962, Bush was a democratically elected president. He was a man of great stature. He was 6'4", very tall. He had some Scottish blood in him. Bustamante, and he's a legend in Jamaica. So he's born in 1884, okay? So in 1984, when Maggie and I happened to be down there, Jamaica celebrated the centenary of his birth, and he lived to be 96. So he was only, you know, passed away just four years before that. So Maggie and I go to his hometown, which wasn't far from the grill, in a parish in a city called Blenheim, which happens to be also the estate of Wharton Churchill in England, <laughs> Blenheim Castle. He, uh, Churchill grew up there. But anyway, uh, because, uh, you know, Jamaica is a colony of Britain. A lot of towns were named after British towns. So I digress a little bit. But anyway, so we go to Blenheim, his hometown, where the centenary thing is. I'm carrying a camera with a 40-pound pack of video. And I guess I must look like a newsman. And of course, this is before 9-11. I get up on the dais. Nobody questions me. And I take video of uh, a speech by the present prime minister, other prime ministers, old friends of Bustamani, Bustamani's widow, uh, who was 30 years his uh, junior. Her name became, uh, she's a legend in Jamaica. She was known as Lady B. A few days later, I had a video copied in Kingston, and I visited the estate of the Bustamantes. They live in uh, on a mountainside overlooking Kingston, a place called Irish Town. That's where the rich and famous and powerful live. I go to the gate. A man who is a groundskeeper there, I tell him what I'm doing, and I, I want to give a gift to Lady B of uh, my video. And he says, oh, come in, come in. She is down in town right now delivering a uh, lecture at the Bustamante Children's Hospital. She'll be back in a couple of hours. Make yourself comfortable on the veranda. And he leads me to the veranda. Sure enough, a couple hours later, she pulls in with the limousine. We introduce ourselves to each other. I tell her what I'm about, and she is so pleased that I've given her that gift. She makes uh, tea for us, and we have tea and crumpets. Then she goes about bringing out a huge set of scrapbooks of her life with Bustamante. And she says, notice the person in the chair 
on which you're sitting. Well, it's Prince Philip, and the queen is next to him. And we go on and on and on. They had gone to the funeral of President Kennedy, and on and on and on. She just tells me all about the people. So sometimes you have to be bold, and you you get more networks that way. Now, on the uh, British Columbia study, I'm going, I'm switching to the Northwest now. Maggie and I decide that we're going to have a companion program with our Southwest trip. We're going to have a Northwest Native American trip. So we start reading books of chiefs and leaders of tribes of the people that we want to go visit. We didn't know these people. We only had their names and the communities they lived in, but they were well-known people. So we take Amtrak out to Seattle. We go across to Vancouver Island on a ferry, and we start going from tribal community to tribal community, knocking on the doors of uh, chiefs and advisors to chiefs and, you know, all, all kind of people. Uh, people who represent the tribe in parliament and all that. And they are, to a person, very welcoming of our vision for a field trip up there. Uh, One chief said, we need people to know about us, to know our side of things. That's another way that we created networks of informants. How do you think your background in anthropology affects your travels and how you created your programs? Anthropology, to me, is more than just a discipline. It's a a way of life. It's a way of looking at life. I think a person almost has to have a soul for it. What anthropology allowed me to do was to literally see and talk to other people, get their viewpoints, and Even though I might have the soul of being maybe sensitive to other cultures, this actually made me more sensitive. It made me have a more global outlook. The seed might have been sown in me, my DNA, but and and Maggie's too. But we also love to travel. We have a pretty vague comfort zone. We've tolerated some pretty rough living at times. And that hasn't bothered us a bit. I think you might even say, you know, we've thrived in chaos. I think that's a little wrong because uh, when we go, we have worked so hard on organizing things. Our trips were, were not all that chaotic. So it's, it's made me a global citizen. It's made me more sensitive to issues. I don't see any issue through a narrow lens anymore. Every trip we take is a little easier Uh, For us, we withstood it. And it was a little bit at a time, two weeks here and there, then months. Anthropology makes you aware of the validity or the invalidity of your data. And that makes you a better researcher. What was your favorite trip with students? I think my favorite trip with students was a trip we took about 10 years ago to Costa Rica. The thing is, we're always trying to get the native point of view. We were looking at the grassroots up, not the top down. We had a man, a Costa Rican, who understood our goals. And he and and myself uh, together 
went into various really jungle communities months before uh, we took students. He claims that we may have been some of the, maybe only a handful of North Americans that some of these native peoples had ever seen. We went deep into the jungles and we saw uh, rituals there that very few people have, have seen. One was called the Dance of the Little Devils because the Spanish called the Costa Ricans that. They were pagans and they were small in stature. So they were diablitos, little devils. And, and so every year from uh, January 1st to the 4th, they have a, a three-night, four-day ritual where they mock the Spanish. <laughs> it's a uh, revisionist history. And if there's any battles, and there are battles, they get on each other's uh, shoulders and they battle. And some are the Spanish, some are the Costa Ricans, and they wear masks, which they sell after the ritual for very cheap. That was an amazing trip. We went through rivers uh, without bridges. Our buses were jostling. and We went over one uh, little bridge that I thought our bus would crack open. <laughs> it, was, it was pretty hairy, but it was the real thing. And I had an Iranian student that went with us on that trip. And when we were done that day, he said, Dr. Coffin, I love you. <laughs> he said, you've taken us on a real adventure today. And that made me really happy. What do you wish students knew about study abroad? That it will truly change your life. Again, if you've got any seed in your DNA that makes you accepting that, study abroad will definitely nurture that. And we want that to be nurtured. It's a very soulful kind of thing that we want nurtured. I think we did a pretty good job of that, given the papers that were written, given the long-term relationships we've had with many of our fellow travelers, and to see them, you know, change. And, and they will say, these trips changed our lives. That's our reward. They're more sensitive. They're, they're more worldly in their view. They're more comparative in their view. They may not like or love that culture they were in, but they know what made that culture tick. A lot of the students, and we agreed with them, there are aspects of these cultures that are rotten. They're bad. They're structured so that some people are abused in those cultures. And they have socially structured the cultures to be abusive to certain elements of their society. So we're not saying that it's la-la land and you're to love everything about the cultures you're visiting, but at least what makes those cultures tick and what makes the powerful powerful and how is it structured for the maintenance of that power? We could do that for our own culture. And that's what they do. They come home and many of the questions they ask about the societies they study, they start asking themselves about the culture they have grown up in. And you can even make the case that anthropology is a subversive discipline in a sense, because the anthropologist asks the why questions. 
Why do you do the way you do? How do you do it? Uh, what do you think about it? And sometimes the people who are abused begin to answer those questions. Maybe they've never had that before. There may even be uh, vocational hazards in this. And I know there are. I know anthropologists who have been uh, earmarked for assassination by people in power who do not like what the anthropologists are asking their subjects. There are physical dangers in anthropology, uh, but there are also occupational dangers and hazards. As a well-seasoned traveler, do you have any advice for people traveling for the first time or who are interested in traveling but haven't started? Immerse yourself in as much literature as you can. Find uh, people who are native to the cultures and countries if you can. If you don't know the language, at least start off and get a smattering of, of the language uh, it'll get you a long way. Lonely Planet is is our favorite. It's based more on grassroots, and, and it's written by people who have traveled there time and time again. They, they have immersed themselves in that culture. And Lonely Planet provides a glossary of language and phrases. It provides all kinds of information on the inconveniences of that nation. It's for the budget traveler. There's sections in that on the history of a country or a culture, uh, the religion, the economics, the cuisine. Also, I would look for novels, people who have written novels that might be what you could call, you know, factional reading. Fiction and yet so real to the ambiance of a, of a country and its issues. I would look at those there's culture shock books for almost every country now. And within those pages would be, uh, let's say, tribal backgrounds, minority backgrounds, and so on. But it is a book on etiquette. So do you want to do a quiz? Sure. <laughs> so I'm on nathab.com. It's Natural Habitat Adventures partnered with the World Wildlife Foundation. So where should you travel in 2019? Do you prefer majestic mountains, stunning beaches, fertile river valleys, lush jungles, savannah grasslands, sparkling desert sands, or snowy boreal forests? Mountains. What kind of animals spark your interest? Birds like the red-legged honeycreeper, unique megafauna, like desert-adapted rhinos, marine mammals like blue whales, primates like chimpanzees, predators like prowling lions, or arctic animals like polar bears? Marine mammals. The most amazing experience was uh, the whale shark. Well, it's the world's largest fish. It's not a mammal, but anyway. <laughs> and, and they... They're 40 feet long, and they have a mouth that looks like a grill on a car bed. And they're the most gentle creatures. And to swim with them is something else. Where did you get to swim with them? We swam with them off the coast of Baja, California, the southern tip. They're migrating there right now, and they'll stay till March. You know, another place, too, uh, or another one is the penguin colonies of Patagonia on the southern tip of South America. That was interesting. 
I I enjoyed those more than I did the African safari that that I went on in 2002. What is your primary reason for travel? To be wowed by wildlife, to see striking landscapes, to photograph unique experiences, to savor fine food and wine, to get some peace and quiet, to relax by the beach, to gaze upon ancient wonders, to venture into the unknown, or to be captivated by marine creatures. Hmm. That's interesting because it doesn't talk about people to people. None of them. Well, I suppose ancient wonders, but not they don't have to be too ancient. I love to go through forts and I love to go through jails. Well, they're the social history. Natural wonders would be a close second. You like falling asleep to the sound of silence, the whistling wind, ocean waves, rain, singing birds and chirping frogs, waterfalls and silvery streams, a crackling fire, soothing chants, or a snowstorm. Oh, boy. Last January, our room was right at the ocean. We heard that. Just the ocean. They recommend that you travel to Bhutan. Bhutan has long intrigued and entranced travelers seeking tranquility. This tiny Himalayan kingdom nestled into the mountains is a blissful realm of ancient temples and verdant valleys. Have you been there? No. Have you been to Bhutan? <laughs> no. I know. Uh, <laughs> Bhutan and uh, that kingdom and Sikkim, you have to get apply three years before. They only allow like 30,000 tourists a year, I think. It's weird. Wow. So it's yeah. not easy to get to at all. You talk about social distancing, but I mean, they, they just don't want a lot of uh, tourists there. And uh, they kind of handpick you, too. What is your dream trip? Uh, I would love to go to Mongolia. Oh. Go to the, <clears throat> into the interior, into the Gobi Desert. Mongolia is modernizing so quickly, but there are uh, a few tribal areas yet where the people still live in Tian. They are, are shepherds. And I would love to visit that country at some point. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Abroad? Where did you go? Let me know on Twitter at WanderlessPod or by email at WanderlessPod at gmail.com. Until next time, dear travelers, thank you for listening.